The 27 Club is a cultural phenomenon where notable icons with seemingly hedonistic lifestyles die at the peak of their career, coincidentally or not so coincidentally at the age of 27. It consists mainly of popular musicians, actors and artists. The series we're about to embark on focuses in on six of its most known musicians. Today, let's talk about Jim. Jim Morrison died on the 3rd of July 1971 in Paris, France. Here we're going to talk about Jim, the child, the man, the musician, rock star and poet. He is a pinnacle figure of the hippie counterculture rebellion era, a Dionysian living a life of ostentatious excess. Here's Jim Morrison. Hey everyone and welcome back. I'm Kelsey of TikTok's Sweet Lady Music. My page focuses on all things music, songs I love, albums that Rolling Stone thinks are great, delving into lives of musicians I adore, some less so that are still worldwide legends. And this podcast is to focus on a club I'm super intrigued in, the 27 Club. It's a way in which to dive further into the lives of the famous musicians that died at the age of 27. I just recently actually turned 27 myself, so I'm more interested than ever. This podcast series will outline the facts of members of the 27 Club's lives, as well as being a place where I can speak more comfortably about the impact these musicians have had on my own life. Jim Morrison died, as previously mentioned, on the 3rd of July 1971 in Paris, France. I've been a fan of Jim Morrison and The Doors since I came across their music in my teens. From Light My Fire, Strange, Break On Through and L.A. Woman, they're an iconic band with some amazing songs and an instrumental quartet that I usually wouldn't be a fan of. I'm never a lover of the keys being a main feature in a band, but Ray Manzarek just hits different, replacing the need for a bass guitarist and giving The Doors their very distinctive sound. The Doors music really is magical and you just know they were very high, often while writing the mystical lyrics in their songs, which I also love. Jim Morrison as a poet has given us some wonderful lyrics, some very controversial lyrics, and anyone who watches my videos know that I'm a lyrics nut, so Jim is someone I absolutely adore. Out of the six main characters of the 27 Club, Jim was the intellectual and the one who was more interested in words than music. He was a poet at heart and never dreamt of being a singer. Before he died, he was working on a poetry album. It's something he was very passionate about focusing on. Jim grew up a military brat with his father Stephen eventually becoming a powerful rear admiral in the US Navy. Admiral Morrison commanded US naval forces during the Gulf of Tonkin incident in August 1964, which provided the pretext for the US involvement in the Vietnam War in 1965. His mother, Clara, was the main parent who brought up Jim along with his younger brother and sister, Andy and Anne. You would think that Jim's parents would have a bit more imagination when it came to naming their children Andy and Anne, but who am I to judge, I guess? Jim was an intellectual and graduated from George Washington High School in California, testing in the top 0.1% with an IQ of 149. Jim had many interests, including history, philosophy and reading in general. Jack Kerak's On the Road made significant impact on him and is what influenced him to ultimately take on the lifestyle of a beatnik. I mentioned the fact that Jim was very much an intellectual, which can be seen in many points throughout his life. For instance, when he graduated high school in 1961, he asked his parents for the complete works of Friedrich Nietzsche as reward. 
The Birth of Tragedy by Nietzsche was released when Nietzsche was 27 and was something that enthused Jim. He was obsessed with Greek tragedy, which I love, as Greek mythology is something that I'm highly interested in also. And later in the podcast, we will see quite strange comparisons between Greek myth and Jim's own life, which I think is something Jim may have deliberately portrayed. Jim could also be compared to Dionysus, who was associated with drunkenness and licentiousness, the Greek god of wine. This is the author Howard Soon's theory from the book Amy 27, and I definitely agree with it. In the myth of Dionysus, Maenads were his female followers who roamed the mountains and forests, performing frenzied ecstatic dances and were believed to be possessed by the god. Jim's female fans were almost like Maenads, living a life of Dionysian excess. I think Jim is definitely the epitome of a Dionysian rock star and can easily be compared to the god of wine. After high school, Morrison enrolled at Florida State University, but soon transferred to the film program at University of California, Los Angeles, also known as UCLA. Upon graduating, he began to live a bohemian lifestyle in Venice Beach, and this is where he wrote a lot of poetry, which would later be transcribed into lyrics for many of the Doors hits. Jim met Ray Manzarek whilst at UCLA, and even though Jim's mind was set on being in the film industry, when he shared some of his poetry, which would later be lyrics, with Ray, Manzarek put out the idea of them forming a music group. Jim read the lyrics of what would later be the hit Moonlight Drive. Let's swim to the moon, let's climb through the tide, which impressed Manzarek, a fellow intellectual beyond words. It is no secret that Jim smoked marijuana and often dabbled in LSD, which he first started whilst in UCLA. This no doubt supercharged his ability to write incredible poetry and lyrics. Jim never saw himself as a singer, but Ray highlighted that he had a great voice. Whilst in Venice Beach, before forming The Doors, Ray was in a band called Rick and the Ravens. And whilst performing a gig, Jim hopped on stage with them and sang a rendition of Louie Louie by The Kingsman. Ray knew he could sing and perform and could see what we eventually all saw in the performer that was Jim Morrison. Along with his voice, Jim had the look and the attitude of a rock star. After graduating from UCLA, he had lost weight, had a slender frame and grew his hair long. He looked like some sort of Greek god. He made his life romantic in every way, a Dionysian from his late teens. He is someone who is living his main character moment every day of his life. I honestly think that everything Jim Morrison did in his life had a purpose for who and what he wanted to ultimately portray. Upon deciding to form a group together, Jim and Ray started practicing in LA with Ray's brother's band and eventually recruited John Densmore to play the drums. Ray met John at a transcendental meditation meeting and the rest is history. The trio decided to come up with a name and went with Morrison's suggestion of The Doors. This was in reference to Aldous Huxley's The Doors of Perception, a book about drug experiments an autobiographical account of Huxley's psychedelic experience under the influence of mescaline in the 1950s. Manny would say the name and reference is quite fitting and I would definitely agree. Jim, Ray and John somehow found enough money to cut a demo and the only interest after distributing this demo to record companies was from Columbia, who signed the doors to a six-month development deal. No promotion for the band was done by Columbia at this time. The Doors then completed their lineup, recruiting guitarist Robbie Krieger. It is known that Jim got on very well throughout the Doors' career with Ray, but was quite distant with Robbie and John. 
Ray played bass on his keyboard, which made the Doors sound very different to other rock and roll bands which were popular at the time. Another thing that was happening at this time was the fact that Jim had a threat of being drafted to the army hanging over him after a previous educational release during his college years had been completed. John Densmore pretended to be homosexual to get out of serving during the Vietnam War, and it's highly likely that this is what Jim also did as he never got drafted. The Doors had their first gig at London Fog in Los Angeles. The band were incorrectly introduced as the Swinging Doors at this show. The show went down very well, but Jim's lack of conviction worried the group as Jim decided to perform with his back to the audience. After a successful performance, they became the house band at the legendary Whiskey A Go-Go. This is where Jim gained his confidence and started performing in his infamous way, hanging off the microphone, passionately spitting poetry into the audience, a stage presence like never before. This version of himself, Jim called the kid. It was an alter ego he used on stage to be able to perform like the rock star that he was. Eventually, the doors were fired from Whiskey A Go-Go upon Jim's controversial lyrics whilst performing the band's hit song, The End. Once they started the track, Morrison began an LSD-infused vocal ad-lib that would go on to become the song's trademark. But here was where it was debuted and nobody apart from the frontman knew where it was going. Allegedly, the whole of the venue came to a standstill. Waitresses stopped serving drinks and the Go-Go girls stopped dancing. Towards the end of the track, Morrison finally belted out an Oedipus Rex couplet about killing his father and fucking his mother. It was enough to push the owner of Whiskey A Go-Go over the edge and he fired the band as soon as they left the stage. Morrison had gone too far and it definitely wouldn't be the last time that he would do so. Thankfully, the popularity of The Doors continued and soon after this incident, they were signed to Electra Records where they worked with producer Paul Rothschild. Rothschild was a major force in the success of The Doors down the line. Electra made the most of Jim's good looks and decided to put him as the main feature on the cover of The Doors' self-titled debut album. They also put his image on a billboard above Sunset Boulevard, the first time a rock band had been promoted in such a way. Around this time, the iconic photos of Jim were taken by Joel Brodsky. He was topless, arms spread out like Jesus on the cross with a lithe body and long curly hair. This persona of Jim's would become the reason many people called him the Lizard King. He looked absolutely beautiful and I think this image is still very relevant in pop culture today. I often see people wearing this image on their t-shirts, etc. People love it, as do I, but Jim absolutely did not. Jim actually hated this picture. The photos allowed him to become a teen idol, which is never something he wanted to be. He thought it was demeaning as an intellectual poet and once stated that that picture wasn't him. He said he never looked like that, that no one looks like that. And one thing that I came across as well whilst researching Jim is that I think he was very self-conscious. Those photos were absolutely beautiful. And I think no matter how well he looked in person, he just never looked like that in real life. I guess that was another reason why he just absolutely hated those photos. Before continuing on with the story of Jim with the Doors, I'm going to rewind and chat to you about his family dynamics as they definitely played a substantial role in his life decisions. As I said previously, he was the eldest of three. His father was a powerful figure in the US Navy and his mother raised the children. He had somewhat of a spousal-like relationship with his mother as he was the eldest boy and was automatically seen as the man of the house when his father was away. 
They would fight and shout much more than any child-parent fight that his mother Clara had with siblings Anne or Andy. His mother supposedly drank too much and was very strict. Stephen was more easygoing but only when his children abided by his rules. Jim was the apple of his father's eye in many ways, but Jim is said to have been quite embarrassed having a father in the military. At the time of the Vietnam War, that didn't coincide well with being a beatnik, free-spirited rock star. He was also stated to have been scared by his father's ranking and how powerful of a position his father held within the Navy. When Jim's father found out that Jim had started singing in a rock band and wanted to pursue a career in music, he heavily criticised the decision which always stuck with Jim, and so he cut contact with his parents. When he signed to Electra, he told the record company that his parents were dead. Jim's parents only found out about their son's success when Andy Morrison brought home the Doors album with Jim on the cover. Upon seeing that the Doors had been successfully signed and were producing popular music, Stephen rang Jim to congratulate him, but Jim was quite cold in his response. And this is the last time that Jim would have any communication with his father. Wanting to reach out to her son, Jim's mother Clara later contacted Electra Records, who were confused by the call considering they believed she had passed. Electra gave Clara the number for Jim's hotel and Jim was so upset when she got in contact that he told Electra to never let such a situation happen ever again. His mother continued trying to see him, however, and when he was performing with the Doors at the Hilton in Washington, D.C. in November 1967, she showed up at the gig looking to speak with Jim. Her trip was unsuccessful and as soon as Jim got off stage, having been told his mother wanted to speak to him, he left the venue and Washington DC immediately. His mother was very upset about this, but there was a military discipline in the family, so she had no choice but to get over it. Jim's parents followed his career closely in the press. They kept all newspaper clippings and articles they found about him, however they never spoke of him. They were ultimately proud but understood that Jim never wanted to communicate with them again and unfortunately they would never get the chance to do so. Jim was obsessed with his mortality and when Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix died in 1970 he told a group of friends that you're drinking with number three. This was stated only nine months before his eventual death. I think Jim was someone who romanticised death. He often had suicidal thoughts and some inspiration came from these trying times. For instance, he wrote People Are Strange after a bout of depression where he spoke about wanting to commit suicide. Thankfully, he cheered up significantly after having watched the sunrise the next morning. Tragedy is romantic when we read about it often, but would most definitely be horrible to see played out in someone we love. One of my own faults is romanticising these tragedies. I mean, all six of the main musical members of the 27 Club are people I absolutely adore and often wish I lived a life like they did. I mean, with being successful musicians and leaving their mark. But when you think of someone going through the challenges they went through, it is really not romantic at all. I need to start romanticising Mick Jagger. I'm sure he's went through some struggling rock star moments, but he's still kicking. I suppose that's how we should all hope to be if fame and fortune were to happen to any one of us, I guess. Someone who was also obsessed with their mortality was Jim's long-term girlfriend, Pamela Corson. Jim and Pamela had met in LA during the early days of The Doors. Drink and drugs were a problem in their relationship, with Jim using LSD and marijuana and Pamela's drug of choice being heroin. They both talked about death and often talked about dying together. Having looked into the relationship, it all seems quite morbid looking at the facts. 
They also argued a lot, one of the main reasons being that Pamela wanted to marry Jim, but he wasn't interested in getting hitched. Getting married just wasn't cool in the music industry back in the day, and Jim put his foot down that it would not happen. We know by now that Jim was a hedonist, abusing drugs and alcohol profusely. This got him into a lot of trouble, and as you could probably guess, he had many altercations with the police. Before going on stage at a club once, Jim was maced for telling an officer to eat it. Whilst performing, he told the audience what had happened, and because of a fear of a riot occurring, the police turned on the house lights and ended the gig early. Jim was arrested, but charges were later dropped. A clear troublemaker, Jim had also had some run-ins with fellow musicians. There is a story which involves Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix, two fellow members of the 27 Club. One night at Steve Paul's The Scene in New York City, Hendrix was playing on stage and Jim came on stage, took Hendrix's hat and caught his microphone, throwing it like a lasso above his head. He then fell to the floor and wrapped his arms around Hendrix's waist, stating, I want to suck your cock. Okay, Jim, love that for you. (laughs) But Hendrix was embarrassed, uh, but ever the professional, he kept on playing. Jim then stumbled and fell on a table where Janis Joplin was sitting, spilling her drink, and allegedly she was so disgruntled by his behaviour that she smashed a bottle over his head. The story may have grown legs and been exaggerated, but something happened between Morrison, Hendrix and Joplin at the scene, which didn't show Jim in the best light. Janice had a great dislike for Jim, actually, and this had been highlighted in more than one meeting between the pair. There are several accounts of him coming up to her and bradishly pulling her hair to call the scene. Jim was an absolute troublemaker and everyone knew it. Ever the agitator, another situation which caused controversy for Jim and the Doors was when they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show in late 1967. This was a Sunday night variety series that had introduced the Beatles and Elvis Presley to the United States. Ed Sullivan requested two songs from the Doors for the show. People Are Strange and Light My Fire were the two songs chosen. Sullivan's censors insisted that the Doors change the lyrics of the song Light My Fire from Girl We Couldn't Get Much Higher to Girl We Couldn't Get Much Better for the television viewers. This was reportedly due to what was perceived as a reference to drugs in the original lyrics. After giving assurances of compliance to the producer in the dressing room, the band agreed and proceeded to sing the song with the original lyrics. Sullivan was unhappy and he refused to shake hands with Morrison or any other band member after their performance. Sullivan had a show producer tell the band that they would never appear on the Ed Sullivan show again and their planned six further bookings were cancelled. Morrison reportedly said to the producer in a defiant tone, Hey man, we just did the Sullivan show. Which is true. I mean, they had it done. Why would they need to go back? The Doors were contracted under a tight schedule to bring out more albums after the success of their debut, but Jim struggled with writing lyrics and complained of not being allowed to naturally come up with music. He felt he had to churn out product, which is not how he worked, and he was clearly growing tired of being the frontman for The Doors after releasing just two albums. The third Doors album, Waiting for the Sun, was a particular struggle due to this. While recording this album, a friend woke up to Jim playing a game of Russian roulette with a loaded gun, and this just goes to show Jim's wild and self-destructive antics at the time. By autumn of 1968, Jim confessed to Ray Manzarek that he wanted to leave the doors. This was when their third album was at number one, and so Ray couldn't understand. Jim stated he thought he was having a nervous breakdown at this point, and Ray blamed it on him drinking too much. 
Jim agreed to stay with the band for another six months. He stayed longer than that, but it was clear he wanted to leave and that he was not in the right headspace to be in the band. The Doors toured Europe with Jefferson Airplane in 1968 and in September of that year whilst in Amsterdam, Jim swallowed a block of hashish, which mixed with the alcohol in his system, sent him high as a kite. He appeared on stage unexpectedly when Jefferson Airplane were performing and he then collapsed. He was taken to hospital and Ray and Robbie had to sing Jim's parts on stage as they were obliged to perform. The audience received the doors without Jim very well and this depressed Jim. It really undermined his confidence. Jim and the band were disillusioned upon releasing their fourth album, The Soft Parade. They changed things up by including horns and strings in this record. The band was in chaos and the members were not getting along. Jim's drinking and cocaine use did not help at this point. On the 1st of March 1969, the Doors were playing at the Dinner Key Auditorium in Miami, a gig which was meant to kick off their US tour. However, the performance nearly destroyed the band. Jim had altered his appearance and was now yielding a full beard as well as being highly intoxicated. He was a far cry from the Lizard King, which was his signature style. He began to start to strip tease on stage before showing off his private parts. He wanted to shock people and that he did. The police came on stage and chaos again ensued. The concert went into anarchy and the bandmates of the doors fled the stage to safety. An arrest warrant was put out for Jim in the following days for lewd behaviour, as well as indecent exposure, profanity and drunkenness. The tour was cancelled as the label feared what Jim would do next. He faced prison if found guilty in Miami, and the most recent album had gotten negative reviews. It was not a good time for Jim. It was clear he wanted to wreak havoc, and I think it was also clear at this time that he did not want to be on the stage, much like in the story of Amy Winehouse. Jim's apathetic attitude towards music continued and his image started to decline. He looked a lot older due to his beard and allegedly he had gained quite a bit of weight during the recording of The Doors' fifth and final album with Jim, L.A. Woman. However unenthusiastic Jim was, however, L.A. Woman produced The Doors' best work since their debut, including tracks such as Riders on the Storm, Cars Hit by My Window and L.A. Woman. During recording sessions for this album, Jim celebrated his 27th birthday, which we now know would be his last. Jim's lack of passion for performing again was highlighted in December 1970, when the Doors were playing in New Orleans. Jim stopped singing mid-show, and using the microphone stand, he burst a hole in the wooden floor. He then walked off stage. After this incident occurred, the Doors' US tour was once again cancelled. During the mixing period for LA Woman, Jim stated to his fellow band members and management that he was going to be leaving for Paris with Pamela. He didn't tell them how long he would be gone or if he planned on returning. He flew to Paris on the 11th of March 1971 and part of the reasoning for this decision was his supposed fear of going to jail after his accusation for indecent exposure. It turns out he would never return to the US. Upon Jim's move to Paris with Pamela, the Doors didn't know whether or not he would ever rejoin the group. Upon finishing LA Woman, the Doors contract with Electra was complete, so they had seen this break of Jim's as a long holiday, but could not be sure. Before Jim's untimely death, the Doors rehearsed with different singers just in case Jim indefinitely quit. They tried to get in contact with him many times to no avail. One such time they tried to contact him, the reasoning was that Buick had offered close to $100,000 for Light My Fire to be in an advert. 
They tried, but they could not get through to Jim. Even though he wasn't the songwriter, in this instance, Robbie Krieger actually wrote the song, they ultimately wanted Jim's opinion on whether he thought it was the right thing to do. They had to make a decision, and so they accepted Buick's offer. When Jim finally found out, he felt betrayed. He thought it was a very tacky thing to have let their song be used in a commercial. It was a sellout in his eyes. This further divided Jim from Robbie, John and even Ray, with whom Jim was very close. Upon his move to Paris, a friend of Jim's time at UCLA, Alain Ronay, spent time with him in Paris in the weeks leading up to his death. Alan states that Jim was happier than ever and drinking a lot less, even though he looked quite unhealthy in pictures taken at the time. He hadn't given up drinking completely, he had just cut down, and one day Alan went to have a drink with Jim, who came down with an aggressive bout of hiccups. Jim explained that lately he had been having chest issues, as well as often coughing up blood, and now the hiccups were affecting him. He confirmed that he had spoken to a doctor regarding these ailments. Alan left Jim at the cafe where they were drinking to meet another friend. This was on the 2nd of July 1971, the last time Alan would see Jim alive. Jim Morrison died on the 3rd of July 1971 at the age of 27. There was only one person who knew what exactly had happened to him, Pamela Corson. Her explanation of his death was coloured with an attempt to hide her own drug use from the French authorities at the time. This is the main reason why Jim's death is still shrouded in mystery to this very day. Pamela confided the truth in Alan, and she explained to him that her and Jim were snorting heroin on the night that he died. This fact was hidden from the authorities. On the evening of the 2nd of July when Alan left Jim, Jim met Pamela and they went to see a movie together. They then returned to their apartment where they started snorting cocaine and playing all of the Doors records. Was this because Jim knew what would happen, had potentially planned his death and wanted to hear his work one last time? When I found this out, I thought it was almost ritualistic. Anyway, I digress. Back to the night in question. Jim had taken more drugs than Pamela, having done so earlier that day as well as the previous day. Pamela went to sleep at around 2.30am on the morning of the 3rd and soon woke up from Jim's strenuous breathing. She assumed he was beginning to overdose. Pamela slapped Jim hard and ran him a bath. It has been said that a cold bath is something which can help in this situation of a heroin overdose, but Pamela ran a hot bath at Jim's request. A hot bath would not give someone's body the shock required to potentially help in this instance. Jim felt sick and Pamela retrieved a dish for him to vomit in. Pamela noticed blood in this sick, but Jim highlighted that he didn't want her to call a doctor. Jim told Pamela to go back to bed and said he would join her shortly. When Pamela awoke, she was alone in bed and Jim was still in the bath. He was unconscious, head to one side, with blood dribbling from his nose. Pamela rang Alan shortly after 8am and cried for him to get an ambulance. She stated that she thought Jim was dying. By the time Alan got to the apartment, Pamela wailed out to him stating that Jim was dead. Jim had been dead for at least an hour before the emergency services arrived at his apartment. Before the services arrived, Pamela had flushed the remainder of their drugs down the toilet and when the police doctor arrived, he questioned whether Jim had taken drugs. Alan said no. Rightly so, the doctor didn't believe him, but upon a second doctor arriving and being more sympathetic, considering Jim's recent chest pains and drinking in hot weather, he ruled that the death was caused by cardiac arrest. This was the death certificate Pamela wanted. However, it was definitely not apt. 
No post-mortem was done as the death was confirmed as natural, hence the mystery behind Jim's actual cause of death to this day. Does it look like an overdose? Absolutely. Did Jim plan this? No one really knows, but he was very sure that he would die at 27 and had suicidal thoughts previously in life. One thing that stands out to me, which makes me think it was potentially accidental, is the fact that Jim was meant to start recording a poetry album with Electra Records. Jim was a poet at heart, and this was something he loved more than anything he was involved in musically. But I guess we'll never know. Alain and Pamela told the French authorities that Jim's name was Douglas James Morrison and that he was a poet with a private income in order to keep his identity as private as possible during the investigation. Pamela resisted telling anyone in the US about Jim's passing, including his family and fellow band members, but very soon journalists caught wind of his passing. Some journalists reached out to Electra for confirmation and the band's manager Bill Siddons called Paris to find out what was going on. Jim's death was confirmed to Siddons upon his arrival to Paris. Jim was prepared in a coffin for his burial the very next day after Siddons arrived. Alan chose Jim's gravesite, having been accepted into Père Lachaise, a famous necropolis which holds the graves of great cultural figures such as Chopin and Bizet. The plot offered was alongside Oscar Wilde's grave, but Alan chose what he thought would be a more remote location for Jim. Only five people attended Morrison's funeral on Wednesday the 6th of July 1971. There was no priest and everything was done both quickly and quietly as possible. Upon his return to the USA, Siddons, along with the remaining members of The Doors, released a statement explaining that they did not want the frenzy that followed the deaths of Hendrix and Joplin for Jim, and this is why they kept the situation so private until the 8th of July. Jim's parents found out about their son's death when the reporter contacted them for comment. He was buried before they knew of his demise. Pamela inherited Jim's estate, and although they were not married, she started calling herself Pamela Morrison upon her return to LA. Pamela died not so long after Jim, in April 1974, of a heroin overdose. In her death certificate, she is referred to as a widow, and her overdose as accidental. She was also 27 when she died. Her ashes were interred with his remains in Père Lachaise upon her cremation. Jim's gravesite did not stay private for long and was soon covered in graffiti and gifts from people who looked up to him from all around the world. One fan overdosed on drugs on Jim's grave. A far cry from what Alain René had wanted for his friend's resting place. Jim is a popular figure in pop culture to this day. He was a unique performer and upon growing talk of the 27 Club when he became the third popular musician to join, his fame grew into some type of cultural phenomenon. Morrison was and continues to be one of the most popular and influential singer-songwriters and iconic frontmen in rock history. To this day, he is widely regarded as the prototypical rock star. Surly, sexy, scandalous and mysterious. The leather pants he was fond of wearing both on stage and off have since become stereotyped as rock star apparel. Music journalist Stephen Davis described Morrison as the single greatest American rock star of his era and many would agree. In 1993, Morrison was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of The Doors. In 2011, a Rolling Stone reader's pick placed Morrison in fifth place of the magazine's best lead singers of all time. In another Rolling Stone list entitled The 100 Greatest Singers of All Time, he was ranked 47th. He was also ranked number 22 on Classic Rock Magazine's 50 Greatest Singers in Rock. Jim Morrison influenced many famous musicians over the past few decades. 
Iggy and the Stooges are said to have formed after lead singer Iggy Pop was inspired by Morrison while attending a Doors concert in Michigan. Pop later said about the concert, That show was a big, big, big influence on me. They had just had their big hit, Light My Fire, and the album had taken off. So here's this guy, out of his head on acid, dressed in leather with his hair all oiled and curled. The stage was tiny and it was really low. It got confrontational. I found it really interesting. I love the performance. Part of me was like, wow, this is great. He's really pissing people off and he's lurching around making these guys angry. One of Pop's most popular songs, The Passenger, is said to be based on one of Morrison's poems called The Lords. Many musicians have named Jim as their biggest influence, including Eddie Vedder, Susie Sue, Ian Curtis, Billy Idol and Patti Smith, to name but a few. For those who would like to take a glimpse into Jim Morrison's life, there is a biopic on The Doors called The Doors, which can be viewed online. It was released in 1991 and stars Val Kilmer as Jim Morrison. Jim's brother Andy stated that Val wasn't the most convincing Jim, as Val's character rarely smiled, but Jim, in real life, he was a smiler. Maybe more approachable than what Val portrays him to be, maybe? Just note before watching that the film is not an accurate depiction of Jim's life. In fact, Ray Manzarek bitterly stated that Oliver Stone has assassinated Jim Morrison. Oliver Stone, the film's director, himself confessed that the film is not a fact-based biography, but more of an impressionist painting of the life of Jim Morrison. So watch at your own discretion. It's clear that Jim Morrison was very influential throughout his career. I for one adore his music, his voice, his story of success, minus the tragedies that were scattered throughout his short life. I think a lot of the negative things that happened throughout his life were self-inflicted. He really is, you know, the epitome of someone that is leading a Dionysian lifestyle. His emotions ran high. He was passionate, chaotic, sometimes irrational and had a love for creativity, mainly poetry, like no other I've studied before, actually. He went through tough times. And even though I don't think the particular overdose that killed him was planned, I'm not surprised that he died at such a young age from the way that he lived his life. A true hedonist, obsessed with his mortality, but his story lives. In fact, his story is so popular that I believe he has been made immortal in a way. It really is ironic. So there we have it. That's the story of Jim Morrison, a tragic story, but an amazing character nonetheless. Um, The next podcast, we're going to focus on the life of Brian Jones, one of the founding members of the Rolling Stones. Uh, I wanted to state that... There's a book that I read years ago and I recently came across it again. It's called Amy 27 and it's by Howard Soons. And I think everybody who is interested in the 27 Club should definitely read it. It's mainly focused on Amy Winehouse, but also tells shorter summaries of the stories of Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Jim Morrison, Kurt Cobain and Brian Jones. And I got a lot of information from there as well as online articles and YouTube videos. So you should definitely have a look at that book. It's a a really great insight into the lives of the six main musical members of the 27 Club. But that's it for today. You can find me on TikTok at Sweet Lady Music, where we delve into everything, not just the 27 Club, but everything else to do with modern music, older music, all of the decades. Um, Love delving into all types of music there. So until next time, thanks so much. This was Sweet Lady Music and bye for now.